Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Baltimore-based jazz woodwind player Seth Keibel. He opened up about his new 2023 CD, Clown on a Stick. We dig into the artistic approach of this album, the name, and so much more. He is one of the Mid-Atlantic's premier musicians working with some of the best bands in jazz, swing, and more. We cover all of this and so much more. Enjoy. Good morning, Joe. Hey, there we go. All right. What's going on, man? How you doing? Am I, am I'm I good. coming through okay? Yeah, I'm coming through just fine. You're coming through. We're all we're all good, man. Beautiful, beautiful. I like your backdrop. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's my logo. Yeah, yeah. I did that painting a little while back, and it's stuck around. So it's all That's, good. It's, 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 you did the painting? Yeah, yeah. I'm a visual artist too. So fantastic, yeah. man. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you, man. It's great to meet you. Thank you for taking a minute out today. I've already played you on my show. I know, after Woody Herman, no less. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, man, that's 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 tough. I don't have to follow Wood. Well, you know, <laughs> we're in the virtual world, so we're fine. <laughs> Everything's fair game, you know? You know, I'll, I'll tell you real quick. Uh, when I was pretty young, and I don't think I, I don't even think I was interested. I was like, I just started playing clarinet. I was probably like nine years old. And my parents took me to an outdoor concert of Woody Herman. Wow. This is back in like the mid-80s or something, early 80s. So it was probably a few years before he passed away. And I don't even think I paid attention. Like, I don't remember any of the music. I wasn't really interested in jazz back then. But I did go up afterwards. He was super nice and gracious. And I remember, I don't know why I had it with me, but I had him autograph uh, a reed, one of my clarinet reeds. And so I had this read autographed by Woody Herman, and I lost track of it. I don't know what happens wow. in my teenage years, whatever. I didn't really care about that stuff. And uh, I that so I, I know once upon a time I had a read autographed by Woody Herman, and now it's been, you know, 40-odd-some years. It's never shown up again. You know, I kept on hoping I would find it, maybe when we cleaned out my parents' house or something like that, and it never turned up, so it was probably just thrown out at some point. But uh, it kills me, because I had... I mean, now that would mean a lot to me. Uh, but, oh well. Well, it's serendipitous, then, that you actually followed Woody. Somehow, I channeled some electrical current we got in. So, look, if you do, for some weird reason, run into this someday, you got to send me a picture. you got to be like... yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, man, I, I dig your music Thank and you. I dig your vibe and, and I really want to dig into your history. You got quite a history. Sure. But before we get to that point, COVID did quite a number for the last three years on the jazz community. And I'm curious how you survived it and how good it feels to have an album out now, live music, things are opening up. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's the same story as everyone else. COVID was definitely hard. It definitely hit the music business harder than some other sectors. Uh, you know, we got through. Um, I uh, Fortunately, one of my sidelines is I do a lot of lecturing about various music history topics, jazz history, blues history, Jewish music, whatnot, uh, for a lot of lifelong learning programs. I, I, in fact, I do that for the lifelong learning program at uh, Johns Hopkins University and Towson University. It's a nice side hustle. Well, that was one of the things that kind of exploded over the pandemic, where community groups, senior groups, you know, whatnot, were desperate for virtual programs. Yeah. So I did a lot of kind of virtual music programs right here from my 
little basement studio over the pandemic. Uh, it didn't completely make up for the shortfall in gigs, and it wasn't as satisfying as playing gigs. Uh, but it was nice that I was kind of able to to at least do that to keep me out of trouble and and keep the rent paid and all that stuff. So, Clown on a Stick, talk to me a little bit about this release. What went into it? How good does it feel to have this out right now? Uh, it's it's nice to have it out. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's uh, this album is a mixture of uh, a couple of original tunes of mine, four original tunes of mine, uh, and, which is always nice to do. And then some other songs, which I've been playing in concert for years, and people come up to me afterwards and say, hey, which album is that on? I'm like, none. You know, um, part of it because they're <laughs> songs that I didn't think. You know, I felt like, like by Mirabus Duchesne, seven million people have recorded that song. Do I need to be seven million and one? But I had so many people come up to me and say, oh, man, I loved your your interpretation of that song. You know, which album is that on? Where can I get it? I'm like, nowhere. Well, now I have an answer. It's on this record. Uh, so, yeah, it's nice to set it out into the world and, you know, let it free, uh, let, let it fly like a little baby bird uh, is always satisfying. I got a CD release show here in Baltimore uh, Friday. I did one in D.C. at the end of last month, and now we're doing the Baltimore one. Uh, this Friday. So that's a nice feeling. So I want to get into the name of the album. And, you know, it's kind of a risk. <laughs> Some people get weird about clowns. You took a big risk putting it on the cover. Talk to me a little bit. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about how all of this came together and you taking that risk. So, look, w- one of the signs uh, when you know you've actually established yourself as a as a professional performer is when people make snotty comments online. Uh, So there was a video of one of my performances on YouTube, and some anonymous dude commented, the clown with the stick seems to be in love with himself. Uh, And it it, kind of cracked me up, because first of all, I mean, every artist, performer, or other types of artists that I've ever met has always been filled with self-doubt, you know, imposter syndrome, even self-loathing. So the idea of any artist being really in love with themselves seemed kind of funny to me because I think nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but then I kind of liked his phrase, clown with a stick. So I figured, you know, <laughs> you know what, dude? I'm taking your phrase and I'm not All even right. going to pay you any royalties for it. So uh, <laughs> that's how I came up with the title. And then the, the title song, which is, is the one I think you played before Woody Herman, is, uh, you know, people expect a song, A Clown with a Stick, to be, you know, bright and cheerful. But there is a long, rich tradition in music, especially classical music, of the sad clown aria. We've got so many great sad clown arias. So this was my kind of jazz version of a sad clown aria. You know, when I got this album, I looked at it and I'm like, all right, what do we got here? We got a clown. We got a stick. What's up? And I was hesitant. And then I put it in and I'm like, look at this. I like it. I like it. And I usually interview before I put it on, but I was pretty fired up about it. And I was like, I'm going to do it. And then I reached out afterwards. So it was quite a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did this jazz journey begin for you? How did this music jazz odyssey begin? Well, let's see. I'll tell you a few things. Um, So when I was in fifth grade, I, you know, you had to choose instruments and, uh, uh, I chose, well, I ended up actually, my first instrument I chose was the flute. 
which I which I still play a lot of. Um, yeah. But I had two older brothers who were both teenagers at the time, and, and they told me, you know, no no boy play flute, only girls play flute, which of course is ridiculous. Yeah. But with the benefit of hindsight, it, it's good because I I took the flute back, and I said, sir, I you know I changed my mind and got the clarinet as my second choice. So I started playing clarinet, the school band thing, music lessons, typical middle-class nonsense. Uh, but where I grew up in the suburbs of New York, we were just on kind of the uh, outer reaches of the broadcast radius for WBGO, the great jazz station from yeah. uh, New York, from Newark, Newark, New Jersey, Jazz 88, which I still listen to online a lot. Yeah. Uh, but I had my little clock radio in my room, and I got this station, and I'm like, oh, I love this music. I didn't know much about it, but I just liked it. And I started listening to Jazz 88 a lot. In fact, what I would do sometimes, I'd take out my clarinet, and I, I thought I was goofing off. I honestly thought I was goofing off, but I'd try to play along a bit or improvise, you know, with what was playing on the radio. I was teaching myself how to play jazz. I didn't yeah. realize that. Like I said, I thought I was goofing off. Uh, so... I got a little more serious into jazz. And in fact, I remember going to my well-meaning band director in eighth grade and saying, I'm interested in playing jazz. And he said to me, uh, great, but you can't play jazz on the clarinet. If you're going to play jazz, you have to learn saxophone. Which, again, from the benefit of hindsight, I'm kind of glad because I did learn saxophone and it's become an important part of who I am as a musician. But of course, the notion that you can't play jazz on clarinet is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, Once yeah. upon a time, you know, the clarinet was one of the dominant instruments in this music. Um, uh, one of my favorite quotes by uh, Pee Wee Russell, you know, the great clarinetist, he said, there's plenty of money to be made playing jazz clarinet. Problem is, Benny Goodman has already made all of it. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that's pretty much my jazz story. And I've become a serious student of the music ever since. Um, I've had a little bit of formal training in college and elsewhere, uh, but I would say I'm, you know, 60 to 70% self-taught. That's wonderful. I got a quick story for you about Benny Goodman. I interviewed the oh, great, please. the great Terry Gibbs years ago, which was a trip. Oh. Terry was just wonderful. So he, Terry, told okay, real quick. I'm going to get to your story, Yeah, yeah. but I have to tell you. So one of my presentations that I do, my lecture things is Jews of American Jazz. And I talk about Benny Goodman, I talk about Artie Shaw, I talk about Stan Getz, and yes, I talk about Terry Gibbs. Well, I did one during the pandemic uh, for this synagogue in New Jersey. And it's a Zoom meeting. And lo and behold, there in the bottom corner of the Zoom meeting is Terry Gibbs. <laughs> uh, I guess a friend of his, like, saw that he was listed in the description of this sent him the link he showed up i was i was flabbergasted wow. so like i'm like oh my goodness mr gibbs is such i had your videos queued up so i ended up like putting aside most of what i was going to do and just interviewed terry gibbs on this zoom meeting wow uh, it was just so much fun now i want to hear your terry gibbs story so terry gibbs told me that when he used to be around benny benny called everybody pops he even called his wife pops <laughs> That was yep. his thing. But he, the, the, one of the best stories he told me, and I was in Stitches afterwards, was he toured with Buddy Rich, and Buddy was really uptight. So they they snuck some pot, I don't know, into maybe a cigarette or whatever, but they started getting them high. 
and he was mellow and the band was like dude he is the, he's the greatest guy right now we love the fact so That's once so, funny. so dude once buddy figured out that he was getting high all the time he flipped out and dropped terry off in the desert to fend for himself at night and drove off and terry kept thinking uh, you know he's gonna come back yeah. um so yeah i think but anyways, there there were so many good stories. But I remember he, oh, I always remember him saying, "Benny called everybody on the planet pops." It's all he ever yeah. did, you know. Yeah, no, though no, I think he uh, Terry Gibbs told a story about like rehearsing at Benny's house, you know, and it's pops this, pops that, and you know his <laughs> wife comes in and says, "Oh, do you guys need anything?" And and Benny's just like, "No, we're okay, pops." <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. You already talked about uh, Woody. What was the very first live jazz show you saw that blew you away that either made you want to see it more or become a musician? Okay. I, I can definitely tell you that. It's an easy one to answer. So I went to music, like a summer music camp when I was just like finishing eighth grade and uh, starting high school. And uh, that kind of really ignited my love of music. And when I was maybe... 15 or 16 a couple of us a couple of our friends you know from summer camp got got together and had an extended weekend together like a reunion weekend together now my parents thought and they believe this till their dying day that we were staying at one of the friends houses in the new york suburbs with his parents there what they didn't know my parents never knew is his parents were gone that weekend that's why i invited us over and we spent the entire weekend smoking weed, talking music, and bumming around Manhattan. Anyway, we went to Birdland. It was Sunday night, I remember. We went to Birdland, and, you know, like 15-year-old kids, maybe one or two of us were 16, and I looked like I was 12 back then. And we ended up bribing the doorman, slipping him a 20, to let us stand in the back of Birdland. And Milt Jackson was playing. Milt Jackson Quartet. And I remember, first of all, loving the music. But honestly, one of my real takeaways is I was just starting to get into jazz then. And I was a book nerd. So, like, when I got interested in anything, I went to the library and got books and read them. So I had been reading jazz history books. And Milt Jackson was a guy I had read about. I mean, this is a guy who's mentioned in books. So I naturally assumed... That like any place he played would be filled with hundreds of people lines out the door. And we're in Birdland. It's like the second show on Sunday night. There were maybe 30 people in there. The place is a friend. And I remember just being shocked. Like, how can this place not be packed to the gills? He's famous. You know, I've read about him in books. So that was kind of an eye-opening experience uh, for me. But I I really remember that very vividly. Absolutely. So what was the first stage that you got on where you thought, this is this is my life. This is what I want to do. I feel good here. You know, it was a very gradual thing. You know, growing up, I, there's not a very any kind of serious history of music making in my family. I mean, a few amateurs here and there, but no one who took it seriously. And growing up, I was good at music and liked it, but I wasn't great at it and I didn't love it at first. But as I got older and older, high school and college, music became a bigger and bigger part of my life. And even in college, I didn't think I was going to be a musician. You know, I thought I was going to go to law school or some kind of grad school or whatever. I had a lot of different ideas. Uh, but 
I started playing music more and more in my college years, including a lot of bands, you know, outside of the official confines of the college. And when I finally graduated, finished my undergraduate degree, I decided almost on a whim, you know what? I'm going to have a go at it. I'm going to try playing music for a while. And I kind of told myself, you know, in the back of my head, I thought it's probably just a phase. And when it doesn't work out, I'll, you know, settle down and get a real job or go to grad school or something like that. Uh, well, that was over 26, coming up on 27 years ago. So I think that ship has sailed. Yeah. You know, I kind of lucked out early on. I, I lucked into a few gigs that kind of kept me working. Like uh, not long after getting out of college, I ended up getting uh, joining this rock band, like a jam band that was touring up and down the East Coast. So that kept me busy. And then they, and I just kept it going. And yeah. uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm the happiest guy in the world that it worked out that way. I didn't I didn't necessarily plan to become a musician, uh, but it's the best job in the world for me. Uh, you know, I couldn't be happier doing it. And even the worst gig on the worst day, as far as I'm concerned, is better than, you know, sitting behind a desk or something like that. At least yeah. for me. Natural lead into my next question after decades of doing this. What do you like the best about being a professional musician? What is the fuel in your tank? Man, I, I guess a couple of things. I, I don't know if I'm not going to put these in any kind of order, but. I love playing with other musicians. Um, if music were just me playing in my basement here, I don't know if I'd do it. I don't enjoy playing by myself that much. I'm not someone who really enjoys practicing. I mean, I practice. Don't get me wrong. I practice because I know I need to to play better. But I don't enjoy the actual act of practicing, like, you know, like Sonny Rollins would or Coltrane or something like that. For me, it's playing music with other musicians. That interaction, that's what gives me the high. And then I'll be perfectly honest, I do love playing for an audience. I love playing for people. I love when people are dancing. I love when people are smiling. I love, you know, I, I love the fact that for at least a few minutes, Maybe I'm making someone feel a little better. Uh, I think it's a big honor and a privilege. So, you know, I fully respect musicians who love making music by themselves or don't really care if they're playing for people, you know, or making their music just to get their art out there. Um, I'm not that guy. I like playing with other musicians and I love playing for people. Uh, it's, you know... It's a, like I said, it's a big honor and a privilege, but it's a big, you know, it's a big charge for me too. Yeah. So we've been oscillating around live performance. If you could get into a time machine and go back and see a dream gig, where are you going? Who are you seeing? Oh my goodness. So it's funny you mentioned that. I joke about my time machine list, about places <laughs> I want to go and see and do uh, if I ever had a time machine. And it's a long list. I mean, uh, well, the first thing I do is go back 10 years and buy stock in Zoom. Uh, right. But after that, like so many famous jazz moments that are not recorded, like supposedly there were these legendary jam sessions in Harlem. And I guess it was it might have been 1926 when uh, Louis Armstrong and Bix Beiderbecke were in. New York at the same time. Louis Armstrong playing with Fletcher Henderson, Bix Spiderback playing with Paul Whiteman. And they used to drink and jam the night away. Wow. Oh my goodness. To yeah. be in the room. 
you know, to be in the room at some of the legendary mythical jam sessions at Mitten's Playhouse. Ah, I was talking about one just the other night. There's a famous jam session that took place in 1936 uh, in the offices of Brunswick Records. And it was like a promotional event for Brunswick Records. And there was like a 12-minute version of I Got Rhythm that was performed by a trio. The trio was Artie Shaw on clarinet, Duke Ellington on piano, Chick Webb on drums. Wow. There's a famous photo, but there's no recording. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Man. I'd, I'd set my time machine for that. I want to hear that. <laughs> I want to hear what that actually sounded Man like. Man alive. Are you, you kidding? Know, I've got a long, I've got a long time machine list. The premiere of Rhapsody in Blue. Yeah. You know, George Gershwin supposedly improvised most of his piano part at the premiere in 1924 with Paul Whiteman. And then after the fact, he wrote down what he thought he played. Wow. So I want to hear what he actually played. Yeah. Are you kidding? I want to go back there in 1924 and hear the premiere performance. So I'm going to, one of these days, I'm going to get my hands on a time machine. I'm going to do all that stuff. Absolutely. We'll get the DeLorean. Save me a seat. (laughs) I'll be ready to go. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, from the early days of WBGO, of listening and being a fan to being an actual practitioner, why do you love jazz? Oh, man. There's so many reasons I love it, but probably... The biggest that I and I tell this to young people all the time when I'm doing like school programs or or whatever um, is the fact that it lets me be a complete individual. Jazz is all about individuality. You know, you can you can uh, 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 line up, you know, 50 clarinetists in a room, ask them to play all of me and all of these other clarinetists, uh, a lot of them may be more successful than me, richer than me. Most of them will be taller than me. But no one is going to play that song exactly the same way I'm going to play it. Yeah. You know, that's a magical thing. It is so hard in this day and age to be an individual. And in jazz, not only do you get to be an individual, but that individuality is, is celebrated. I mean, look, you know, in classical music, and don't get me wrong, I love classical music, but when they play something on the radio, the first thing they say is that was, you know, Mozart's Jupiter Symphony. That's the title on the record. You know, you go into the record store. If there is a record store, it's filed under Mozart. It's the piece, the composition, not in jazz. You know, no, no one goes, I know there are no record stores anymore, but even where there were, no one goes into the record store and says, I want a recording of Darn That Dream. No, you want a recording by Lester Young. Yeah. You want a recording by Art Pepper. You know, it's the performer. There's such an emphasis on individual, and I love that. So that's yeah. probably the top reason. There are other reasons as well, but that's the top. That's a great oh, answer. Reason, of course, is the obscene amounts of money I make playing jazz. <laughs> That's what I was getting to. <laughs> I love that individuality answer, and I want to take that baton and go further. Speaking of being an individual, everyone has a perception of you, family, friends, fans, colleagues, but you run the show. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I mean, I, I will admit that there is an element of me that is a shameless ham. 
You know, I mean, I take music very seriously. Don't get me wrong. I am serious with music. But I like to make people smile. I like to make people laugh. I play, I mean, I play music that's, that hopefully makes people sad or emotional too. Uh, but I really like to make people happy some way or another. So, you know, I like being on stage. I, I, I like talking between songs sometimes, you know, and, and kind of joking with the audience and, you know, doing my little quips and my little shtick. And, you know, some of the musicians I work with regularly roll their eyes uh, while I'm talking between songs. But I love that kind of thing. I love connecting yeah. with people. I love making people happy. And I think, uh, I think people, I mean, my ultimate hero is Louis Armstrong. It's hard to pick your favorite. But I talk about Lewis because that's who he was. Yeah. And he was the same guy on and off the bandstand, uh -huh. you know. And he was someone who was all about spreading joy and spreading happiness. And that's beautiful. That's magical. There is yeah. so much unpleasantness in the world today. And if I can do just a little bit to kind of counteract some of that, that's uh, that that's that's a... a, a, a a worthy task. That's the Armstrong medicine. Have you seen that movie on Apple Plus about him? No, I, you know, oh, I want to because I've seen, do. I've read and seen everything. I, I got to get Apple Plus. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm one of these days I'm doing the trial and, you know, we'll see. But, uh, do it. But I really yeah. want to, yeah, the black and blue. They, yeah. uh, that's supposed to be fantastic. It's wonderful. Absolutely. If you have a dream tonight, run into the 20 year old version of yourself and you could give that version of you a piece of advice based on what you've lived, the wisdom you've gained, what would you tell that young version? No, my goodness. Practice more. Practice <laughs> piano more. Right. I wish I had gotten better as piano. You know, I'm not, I can't really, I can play a little bit. You know, I, I'm a functional pianist. I would never play in public. But I wish I would spent more time doing that. I wish I would spent more time singing. I wish I had developed, you know, uh, a better, not because I want to be a pianist or I want to be a, a singer. I don't want to do either of those things. But I feel like if I was better at those, that would make me a more well-rounded musician today. Uh, what else would I tell 20-year-old me? I don't know. A few investment tips, a few stock tips, like I mentioned. Zoom. <laughs> yeah, Zoom, exactly. You know, this little company, this little company called Amazon. They're going to sell books online. Who's going to want to buy books online? Who would All do right. that? Yeah, who would do that? That's silly. Yeah. Um, but no, beyond that, just enjoy the ride and you're making the right decision. You know, cool. I'm, I'm really happy that I kind of almost accidentally became a musician. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it for the world. So Seth, if anyone wants to get clown on a stick, live shows, anything pertaining to your world, previous work, where do they go? Well, I mean, probably the best place is SethKeibel.com, S-C-T-H-K-I-B-E-L. Shockingly enough, that domain name wasn't taken. Uh, but honestly, one of the advantages of having a slightly unusual name is there's only one other Seth Kyable in the world, and he's like a 23-year-old med student in Ottawa. Dude's probably taking all my gigs. But no, really, <laughs> you type my name in anywhere, you find me. Spotify, Amazon, you know, Apple Music, iTunes, YouTube, whatever. You type Seth Kyable in, I show up pretty darn quickly, which is nice. Uh, the album Clown with a Stick is available as an old-fashioned useless CD uh, on my website. But it's also on all the streaming services and everything like that. So I'm happy for people to listen to it wherever they're they're so inclined. Right on, Seth. This has been great, man. Thank you for opening up. This has been a wonderful, fascinating interview, man. 
Thank you, Joe, and thanks for all you do. It's it's people like you who are out there plugging the music and 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 doing that. Man, that's that's just fantastic. You were you were doing some special work. So I, I love it. I love you, cats. So yeah, this is it. Standing on the shoulders of giants, man. <laughs> yes, indeedy. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Baltimore, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Seth for his time, energy, and cool. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.